Hello, survivalists. This is the Crux True Survival Stories. I'm your host, Casey McIntosh, joined by Julie Henningsen. How are you doing today, Julie? Great. Glad to be here. How are you, Casey? I'm I'm great. Um, as a total side note to this story, I had a little bear incident this morning. Um, a little black bear decided that it wanted to take our Subaru for a spin, and it opened the, the driver's side door. And there are little paw prints all over the seat. Thankfully, oh that's as far gosh. as it went. <laughs> was it in your, I'm guessing it was like in your driveway. Yeah. Yeah, it was in my that's driveway. Wild. It opened the door, tried to get in. I think it was looking for food, but the adjacent neighborhood, they've got, all, you know, it's a rental community and multiple vehicles have been broken into by this bear. I'll um, link one of the pictures because it's pretty destructive. Yeah, Thankfully, I'm glad it. I'm glad it didn't destroy too much. You must not have been keeping your bag of Doritos in the front seat, right? Well, also we're selling our Subaru, and Toby was getting it ready to show today, and so thankfully it wasn't annihilated. Yeah, that's fortunate. <laughs> yes, I'll send you a picture of the bear paw prints. It's it's hard yeah. to, you wouldn't know what it was unless you knew what it was. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Like yeah. we knew that the bear was breaking into vehicles. So that's how we were able to figure it out. It left the yeah. driver's side door open. So. Oh, it left its mark. <laughs> Could yeah. have been a lot worse though. Could have been Could worse. Could have been a lot worse, but it was entertaining for sure. Today, we take you back to a fateful day, April 26th, 1976, when a simple journey turned into an extraordinary tale of terror, but also resilience and survival. On this date, Lauren Elder made the life-altering decision to be the third passenger in a Cessna 182. Embarking on a flight from Oakland International Airport in Oakland, California, with the destination set for Furnace Creek Air Valley in Death Valley's Furnace Creek. The pilot, a 36-year-old Jay Fuller, who set the course eastward, seemingly intended to follow the majestic Bubbs Creek up to Kearsage Pass. But as fate would have it, they veered off course flying southeast into the rugged expanse of Center Basin, surrounded by towering peaks over 13,000 feet tall. While Lauren Elder sat in the back seat enjoying the breathtaking mountain vistas, she suddenly found herself faced with imminent disaster when the plane encountered a forceful downdraft, sending the plane into a wall of granite. Lauren's life would be forever altered. Join us as we delve into the remarkable story of Lauren Elder's harrowing adventure in the Sierra Nevada, exploring the trials, the resilience, and the triumph that define her incredible journey. Wow, that sounds like something that uh, you wouldn't think someone would survive. I'm so excited to hear how she survived this. No kidding. So I was looking at pictures of this crash, and I'll try to post something so listeners can take a peek, but it just looks like a toy airplane on expanse of rock field. Just this teeny tiny little what? fragile thing on a rock field in the aftermath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plane versus granite wall. I think the granite wall is going to win pretty much every time. Our story starts on April 26th, 1976. Lauren climbed into the backseat of this four-seater Cessna 182P Skylane. The pilot named Jay Fuller and his girlfriend, Jean Noller, were sitting in the front seats. 
Lauren, who was 29 at the time, she had been invited to go on the sightseeing trip after her boyfriend, Jim Fisdale, backed out of the opportunity at the last minute because he had to pick up the shift at work, which I think is interesting. It's like, did he have some premonitions about this or? Good call. Good call, Jim. <laughs> right. But he sent his girlfriend in his place, which I'm not so sure that that was mm. a good call. Yeah. Right. So was she friends with this other couple? Well, I mean, she wouldn't have gone on the trip had her boyfriend not known the, this couple. And the pilot was an Oakland veterinarian who worked with Jim. So I don't know. Oh, got what, it. Yeah. So I don't know what capacity Jim worked in the vet's clinic. But in any case, I think it was an acquaintance, but probably th there was nothing that I found that really indicated how close she was to the couple in the plane, but I don't think she knew them very well. The plan was to fly from the Oakland airport to Furnace Creek airport in Death Valley, which, okay, come on. That just sounds ominous. Don't you think? Furnace, yeah, Creek, Furnace airport. Creek. No thanks. <laughs> and Death it's in Valley. Death Valley. <laughs> a hard pass for me. <laughs> Yeah, Furnace Creek initially opened in 1942 as Furnace Creek Landing Field. It was a military-owned field. The military abandoned it in 1945, and it became a small civilian airfield in 1953. So this group in the plane, were they were looking forward to taking some aerial photographs of the Sierra Mountains, and they were going to picnic at Furnace Creek and then turn around and head back in the afternoon. So we've talked about the Sierra Nevada range before, but I was just going to give you a little bit of background on it again. So the Sierra Nevada is a mountain range located in the Western United States. It extends from the Southern part of California to the North to the Northern part of Nevada. It stretches approximately 400 miles from North to South, making it one of the longest mountain ranges in the U S the range is known for its high elevation. The average elevation of the Sierra Nevada exceeds 11,000 feet, or 3,353 meters, with many of the peaks reaching well above 12,000 feet. I mean, that those are some tall mountains. Yeah, that is an impressive mountain range, both in geography covered and also elevation. The Sierra Nevada is home to some of the highest peaks, like we mentioned before, in the contiguous United States, including Mount Whitney, which is the highest point in the lower 48 states at 14,505 feet, which is 4,421 meters above sea level. The Sierra Nevada is of significant geological interest. It was formed through a complex process involving the collisions of tectonic plates and volcanic activity. The mountains are primarily composed of granite and are considered part of the larger Pacific mountain system. The climate here varies depending upon elevation, of course. In the lower elevations, you'll find a warmer climate. In higher elevations, of course, you're going to experience subarctic or alpine temperatures. Winters are really harsh with heavy snowfall, which is no surprise at that elevation. The Sierra Nevada holds cultural and historical importance because it was explored and documented by early European settlers, and it also played a significant role in the California gold rush during the mid-19th century. So anyway, it's an interesting place. Yeah, I always think of John Muir. I think he that was his stomping grounds, or at least one of them. He's written a right. lot about the landscape there. Well, and then there's the John Muir Trail, right, which I don't know the distance of that, but we did another story earlier on, on the crux, um, that talked about that. So 
I'll link that in the show notes too, if you're curious about it. So back to our story, the pilot Jim was a 36 year old male. He had 213 flight hours, 46 on type, which I wonder if that's flying within the mountains. I'm not sure. And he wasn't instrument rated. So he may or may not have had mountain flying experience, but probably not as much as he should have had. When I was looking at how many hours you need to become a pilot, it was way fewer than what I expected. Yeah, it's not a lot. Um, my husband, Matt, went through the training. He's a pilot. I've never been up with him. And it's stories like this that make me not put it on my calendar anytime soon. Right. So this is what I'm reading. Private pilot's license is 40 hours. Commercial pilot certification is 250 hours. And airline transport pilot certificate is 1,500 hours. So to get your private pilot's license, yeah, it doesn't seem like, I mean, 40 hours seems like a drop in the bucket to me. Doesn't right. It? It's not a lot. It's a work week. Yeah. One week. Mm. But skill, skill and distance are hard to judge when flying over large mountains. You know, I think regardless of how many hours you have, this is going to be potentially difficult. And I'll get into that a little bit later with wind patterns and whatnot. As it always seems in these stories, it was a beautiful, clear day and they were enjoying their time in the air. But Lauren may have noted some warning signs. In the aftermath of this story, it was suspected that the pilot was following Bubs Creek to Kearsage Pass, which is a well-known route that would lead them safely to Furnace Creek without having to go over any large mountains. But I want you to take a guess, Julie, at what actually happened. Do you think that they went that way, the safe way, the safe and boring way? Well, I'm going to guess one of two things. First guess, he thought he was following Bubs Creek, but it was actually a different creek. Second guess, he decided spontaneously or impulsively to change route and try something different that wasn't part of his original plan. Am I right? Yeah, well, what I will tell you is he didn't go the way that they originally had planned or maybe should have gone. You know, in my mind, what I was thinking is he decided he was going to show off a little bit and mm. fly over these large peaks just to give the women in the plane a little bit more of an exciting experience. I mean, I could be totally wrong about this. He could have intended to follow the original path. And then, like you said, maybe he got waylaid by something else that looked similar. So he ended up flying southeast to Center Basin, which is flanked by three peaks, which are between 13,000 and 14,000 feet with ridges of 12,500 feet. Mm, yeah, that's a real just like rim of rock. Right. In Lauren Elder's book, which is titled, And I Alone Survived, which gives a lot away about this story yeah. before we get okay. into it. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Spoiler alert. Elder apparently wrote, quote, I felt a kind of thrill at our daring. Jay was having a wonderful time slipping the little plane through these valleys and massive mountains, acting like guide to two thoroughly engrossed women. Mm, okay. That might be why you were thinking what you were thinking earlier. Just with that description, you know, it sounds pretty accurate. Right. And part of it makes it seem like they were riding up and down drafts as if it was for fun. Mm. I saw this speculated in an article that I read and just take it with a grain of salt because it is speculation. But part of the problem in the decision making could have been related to lack of oxygen. Um, 
Supplemental oxygen is required by the FAA for pilots over 12,500 feet for over 30 minutes and at all times above 14,000 feet. So Mm -hmm. the lack of oxygen can lead to euphoria, numbness and tingling, vision changes, of course, poor decision making. Yeah, definitely. Cognitive dysfunction, high altitude cerebral edema, pulmonary edema, all the things. Yep, exactly. So who knows how much that played into it, but they were really getting up there to the end spectrum of what the plane could even handle in terms of altitude. I wanted just to talk a little bit about the dangers of flying over high peaks in a Cessna. I mean, of course, any aircraft going over tall peaks is going to be at risk for turbulence and different challenges based upon the air movement. But the thing is, Cessnas only have a certain altitude that they can fly to. So they're even at higher risk of the weather changes relating to peaks and mountains. Here's how updrafts and downdrafts can affect flying over high peaks in a Cessna. So updrafts, you get lift and gain of altitude. Updrafts are columns of rising air, which are common around mountainous areas. When an aircraft encounters an updraft, it experiences a sudden increase in vertical lift, causing it to gain altitude. This can be challenging for a pilot because it can lead to unintentional climb if you're not managing it appropriately. You end up increasing your airspeed in response to an updraft. So the airspeed may increase even if the pilot maintains a consistent throttle setting. So this increase in airspeed can be unexpected and necessitates adjustments to maintain a safe and controlled flight, which, you know, you're going to have to be really be thinking on your toes. There's potential for turbulence because updrafts can often be accompanied by turbulence with the rising air colliding with surrounding winds. Mm. So clearly this can affect the stability of the flight and requires the pilot to really be making decisions quickly. Yeah. And probably anticipating some of those things, just knowing that anything can happen in an environment like that. Downdrafts, you get the loss of altitude. Downdrafts are columns, of course, that are descending and they can be particularly hazardous for aircrafts flying near or over mountain peaks. When an aircraft encounters a downdraft, it experiences a loss of altitude, which can be sudden and rapid, and pilots need to react quickly to avoid collision. You also get decreased airspeed, which makes sense. And it can be problematic if the aircraft is too close to its stall speed. To prevent a stall, a pilot might need to increase power to adjust the aircraft's altitude. Then you've got turbulence and wind shear. So downdrafts are often associated with turbulent conditions and wind shear, which can be especially challenging for pilots. Wind shear refers to sudden changes in wind speed and direction with altitude, and it can make the aircraft's path unpredictable. Mm. So all of this to say, you know, it's really important to have experience and knowledge about weather patterns. Yeah. And also just experience uh, behind the, what do you call it? The throttle. Mm-hmm. That's pretty wild how you just do something enough and you can anticipate that and you know what's coming and you're prepared for it. I'm teaching my daughter to drive right now. She just got her learner's permit. And so mm-hmm. it makes me think of like all of the things that I just take for granted that I know how to do without thinking. It always has to start as a conscious thought process. And until you get to the point where it's more automated, yeah, you got to be careful. Well, and it seems like this type of terrain would be especially difficult because how do you practice for this type of terrain without going into the terrain that's some, you know, mountainous like this? My suggestion would be avoid it altogether in a Cessna. Yeah, go up, 
go up with somebody who has way more experience with you and can at any point kind of take control. Right. Whether that's Although, a, a, you know, a buddy or an instructor, or a flying club or something like that. What you'll find is that in this story, it wouldn't have mattered if um, the pilot had someone with him because, well, maybe it would have. Maybe they wouldn't have been in this precarious situation to begin with. Yeah. Elder recalled the pilot calling out, get ready for a fantastic view when we clear the crest. And at that moment, there was a sudden downdraft. And with the downdraft comes the deceleration. And the pilot mm. was not able to recover in time for what came next. Elder was looking backwards out the window. She'd been taking photos and she actually had unbelted herself. She was not buckled in. She was oh, wow. just taking photographs and kind of lost in what she was doing. At one point, she redirects her line of sight towards the front of the plane and sees this wall of granite imminently moving towards them. Mm, terrifying. And get this, the plane crashed into the wall 15 feet below the summit. 15 feet. Like, that's really not very far oh, away. No, that's so close. They almost had it. Almost. When Elder awoke, she was in a crumpled plane on the side of the mountain that was essentially broken in half, only a few feet from a ridge. Hmm. It sounds like she had a period of unconsciousness, at least for some extent of time. Right. Jay, the pilot, crawled out of the wreckage. His girlfriend was unconscious at the time. She had a severe head injury and a slashed face. Jay and Lauren removed her from the aircraft. Lauren collected drippings of fuel after emptying some beer bottles to light for warmth. They didn't have anything to burn, so they just poured the fuel on surrounding rocks and set it on fire. Jay worked on the radio to activate so, the emergency beacon. So were they kind of like on a ledge on this ridge side? And it looked sort of like a scree field with like a pile of boulders that they're on. Yeah. It doesn't look okay. like a nice pile of boulders, but you know, like... <laughs> Big rock chunks, essentially. Yeah. But it must have been steep. As Noller, you know, the girlfriend, was lying on the ground, she was, according to Elder, quote, strong and unruly, moaning and whining, anguish sounds. She then began convulsing and slipped down the mountain slope out of the line of sight of Elder and Fuller. Oh, that's awful. That's so sad. I know. Can you imagine? I would... Just thinking about being in that situation to begin with, so shocking. And then to have to watch that, knowing that you can't do anything. There's nothing to be done. Yeah, yeah nothing to be done. Oh, it's horrible. Jay was distraught and he told Elder that he had done a dumb thing, really dumb. He was telling the, her that he should have circled. He should have made another approach to gain altitude because of the downdrafts. I guess the reason that pilots circle is to get one to 2,000 feet of clearance before crossing a ridge. But he would have needed more altitude, which was greater than the abilities of the aircraft. I mean, he was on the verge of being in a position where the plane wouldn't have been able to maintain that altitude. Yeah, so even if he had circled, it might not have, they might have met the same fate. Exactly. So Jay and Lauren were just tearful together. And um, Lauren felt sorrowful for the pilot. She felt really bad. Mm -hmm. During the night, the wind blew out the fire that they had on the rocks. And so Elder moved some of these rocks to the tail of the plane. 
and then she and Fuller curled up in the tail of the plane together. They were lying there silently when Fuller started thrashing about, pounding his fists and his head inside the plane, and then he finally stopped moving and Elder fell back asleep. Just like, what in the world hmm. was going on here? Yeah. Is that like a slowly, in, an insidious head injury, maybe? Yeah, that's what I was kind of wondering. Did he have internal bleeding or something? Like, that, like did he have a intracranial hemorrhage or something? Mm-hmm. Um, in the morning, Elder noted that Fuller was motionless. He had thrown off all of his clothing and his coverings in the night. Hmm. And so it was thought that he died of hypothermia. But he also had a head injury and a head gash and potentially some other internal injuries. So it's hard to say. But remember, we've talked about the effects of temperature on people that have blood loss. So he could have had, you know, internal bleeding or something like that, that accelerated his hypothermia. Yeah. Yeah. With a lot of internal blood loss, um, you know, a person could get hypothermic on an 80 degree day. If it's colder than 98.6 degrees, maybe not 80 degrees, but whatever the threshold for hypothermia is, we'll say 75. But yeah, that blood loss, internal bleeding just totally diminishes your ability to thermoregulate. Yeah. I just love it when you're dramatic, Julie. (laughs) Prone to exaggerating a little. I think that happens kind of when you're a parent because you always have to exaggerate to get your kids to take note of what you're saying. It's an effective technique. (laughs) They still ignore you, but what can you do? You try. So in the morning when Elder had noted that Fuller was motionless and that he had passed away, she just sat there watching him for a while. She said, quote, I sat there a long time looking at him. His eyes were open and staring. Mm. I had not known that was what it was like to die. Wow. So lots of trauma. Yeah. Between the crash and then the girlfriend dying and then the pilot dying, it's all pretty unsettling. Yeah. So Elder warmed herself on a ridge and she tried to decide if she should await rescue. At that time, she saw a plane and could not get its attention despite her frantic waving. And after that experience, the question of what she needed to do was answered. She knew she had to walk out. She couldn't wait there. The temperature was too cold. The altitude was 12,500 feet, which was one half mile south of Mount Bradley. Mount Bradley is just north of Mount Whitney. Mm. Julie, this next part will leave you chilled. Okay. I'm already chilled with the 12,500 feet. Okay. Elder had on a blouse, a wraparound skirt, and two inch heeled boots. No, heeled boots. Oh, yes. But that's not the worst. That is not the part that's a disaster. This is the worst part. She didn't put underwear on that morning because she said, quote, I was in a rush and had no clean underwear that day. Just what mothers warn you not to do. Oh, yeah. Mothers say, wear clean underwear because if you run into an accident, you don't want them to find find you with anything (laughs) but clean underwear on. I was just going to ask you, did your mother ever utter those words to you? I don't think she did. Uh, I don't have any recollection of that from her. I think she just assumed that that was a given. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think my mom ever gave me that advice. But what I would say is just wear the dirty underwear. I mean, wear underwear, I guess, is the moral of the story. Yeah, turn it inside out, you know? There's (laughs) solutions to those problems. Get creative. I have to say, though, Casey, I would 
If I had to choose between not wearing underwear and wearing two-inch heels or not wearing two-inch heels and wearing underwear, I would choose the the no underwear. I would not want the two-inch heels. I'm like visualizing that on a scree field. Just think about the wind in locations like this, though. You know, it's just blowing right up her skirt the whole time. I just, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, huge. She's probably just kicking herself the whole time thinking like, why did I wear a skirt? What was I thinking? Mm -hmm. Especially a wraparound. Those can be kind of tight, like not give you a lot of, um, a lot of flexibility in your stride. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wish I could see a picture of what this outfit looked like, but in any case. Sounds cute. Sounds really sounds, cute. It's cute if you're not. No underwear lines. <laughs> That's true. I wonder if that played into her decision-making that morning, but probably not. When Lauren didn't return at the intended time, her boyfriend became concerned. And actually, the pilot had a daughter, Carla, who was only 10 years old. She was home alone. Oh, oh gosh. And- That's horrible. I know. I can't imagine. I guess it's only for the day, but I still can't imagine leaving my kid at home for the day while I went on a flying spree. But thankfully, he didn't invite the daughter. That would have been treacherous. Yeah, that's true. She, she sounded the alarm bells and called Elder's boyfriend, Fizdale, who went to Fuller's house and he began making calls to airfields and the search and rescue. At 2.24 a.m. on Tuesday, FAA had issued an alert and at least a dozen pilots with the civil air patrol and air force rescue center were in the air searching. Mm. Lauren began descending diagonally across this granite face because the Eastern edge drops at a 45 degree angle. And sometimes it's even steeper than that. Mm -hmm. She had to avoid thoughts of pain and cold and move on all fours, kind of doing a sideways spider walk using her boots and fists to make handholds and toeholds in crusted snow. Her movements help keep her warm, but here's the part about not wearing underwear. As we mentioned before, she said, quote, a gust of cold air blew up my skirt, billowing my wraparound and chilling my bear behind. I yelped, but held on, end quote. Oh, boy. About a third of the way down the incline, it was not as steep and she was able to slide down the snowy slope on her skirt and she'd made it through the most difficult part of her journey at that point. By mid-morning, she was able to stand and sidestep, but now she was in knee-deep snow, so I'm sure her feet were completely wet in her Yeah, and then boots. and then she's glad for the boots. Yeah. At least the heels had boots. They were The heels pumps. had boots. They weren't you know, at least the heeled footwear oh. was a boot and not a pump. Oh, that would be terrible. She would have to just take her shoes off altogether if that was the case. Yeah, just go barefoot. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that would be terrible, especially because it's, it's so rocky and, you know, ice and snow everywhere. Fisdale had called Elder's dad, Robert, who's a World War II Navy pilot. He was also the director of flight test operations at Northrop aviation in LA. He sent a plane to help. During this time, rescue pilots saw wreckage, but they did not see any sign of life. In the late afternoon, Elder removed her boots that were totally annihilated. She drank from a pool at the bottom of a waterfall and she began walking in the stream. I'm sure that she was pretty thirsty at that point. Yeah. 
She kept moving on and started noticing that she was hallucinating. She was thinking that she was seeing houses that turned out to be big rocks. And she thought she was seeing people that turned out to be reeds or plants when she got closer to them. When she finally got down, she ended up in Independence and Independence, California. She had ripped clothing, was barefoot and was covered in blood. I read something that indicated that she had trouble getting help initially because she was looking rough and tumbled. Um, Mm. she had, her teeth were smashed. You know, of course she had probably blood all over herself. She had a broken arm. Um, she didn't have shoes on, but apparently the reason that people were potentially a little bit hesitant to approach her was because this was the town where Charles Manson and his female followers were arrested seven years. Oh, wow. What are the chances? That's wild. Yeah. So who knows if that's actually true, but. I can imagine. I mean, we've heard stories about things like this before where people have survived something crazy and no one is helping them because they look so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Scary. I just looked it up. Sounds like Independence, California, population 670. Pretty small town. That is a very small town. That's the kind of place you go to the grocery store and you know everyone there and they know everything about you. Right. If they even have a grocery store. Exactly. Probably a bar and a post office. Yeah, maybe a an inn. Small inn. Small inn. On April 27th at 10 p.m., 34 hours after taking off from Oakland, and after 10 miles of descending and 10 more miles of walking, she was admitted to Lone Pine Hospital. She had blistered feet, mild frostbite on her feet, and a broken arm. Oh, a broken arm. Hmm. Which I would imagine that would have been fun when she started descending on all fours. Right. Exactly. That's a significant injury. All in all, though, she did okay. Also, I don't know how she knew how to get to this town from the bottom of the mountain either. I don't know where she ended up, you know, because that could have been a make it or break it situation too. If she ended up getting lost when she descended the mountain. Right. Maybe she had good visibility and could just like see a road from far off and just could figure out whether to go left or right. Hard right. To know. The rescue team found Noller's body 120 feet below the Cessna and Fuller's mm. body was half outside the plane. It dusted with snow. Mm. Three months after this incident, Lauren hiked with a friend back to the crash site. Her arm was still in a cast. Wow. That's brave. That's pre- yeah. And that's pretty soon after her. Yeah. Crash. It really is. Mm-hmm. Especially with a cast. Yeah, she said in an interview, quote, I had to go back. I felt like the mountain had some kind of power over me. I thought this was really interesting. She noted that she missed this rare focus moment. She said, clarity of knowing precisely what I had to do next or else die. Just, um, you know, really what I thought is interesting about that is that we spend our whole lives making all of these decisions, like hundreds of decisions. And... The fact that we have to think about whether or not our decisions are correct. And in this moment where her life was literally on the line, that kind of went away. She just knew what she needed to do. And so the only other thing I can think about other than a survival situation is like childbirth. You're like, okay, I'm pushing now. I mean, what what else is so direct? I don't know. There's only one direction that this is going and I know what it is. Exactly. 
Okay, so now I'm going to go off on a little tangent for a minute about the Nevada Triangle, which we talked about in a previous episode. Oh, I remember. Isn't one of the corners of the triangle Fresno? Yes. The Nevada Triangle is the region of the Sierra Nevada mountain range that runs from Las Vegas, Nevada to Fresno, California, and um, Reno is at the top. The area is 25,000 square miles. Um, of course, we've heard of the Bermuda Triangle in the Atlantic Ocean, but not as many people are f- familiar with the Nevada Triangle. And this mysterious area has been said to be responsible for as many as 2,000 planes crashing or becoming lost in only a span of 50 years. I have no idea where that comes from, that number. So I wonder, is it just because it's like dramatic mountainous terrain so obviously more hazardous for planes or is, or is there the thought that there's like something otherworldly going on, something mysterious? Well, I mean, obviously people like to think about this mysterious element that could be at play, but, um, Marty Bevel, the president and owner of Fresno flight training in Madeira says that there's nowhere close to this many plane losses or crashes in the area. He challenged the belief he did recognize that this flying over the Sierras is difficult for a lot of pilots. Um, I mean, a lot of it is just difficult flying circumstances and there's nothing to, there's no evidence to suggest that planes have gone completely missing. So ultimately a bunch of experts don't really believe in the quote unquote Nevada triangle in terms of being this ominous and mysterious force that's sucking planes into a void. But they, right. They seem to agree that the Sierras are a dangerous place to fly. In 2007, an entrepreneur, Steve Fawcett, went into the Sierras in his single engine two-seater plane, and he never returned. There was an extensive search without any clues initially, but 13 months later, searchers found him near Mammoth Lakes at 10,000 feet. Pilot error was cited as the reason for the crash. For Marty Bevel is the president and owner of the Fresno flight training. He said... "Mm, When this air mass is forced over this mountain over, here you get this very turbulent downdraft, and that's what killed Steve Fawcett. And he also said, when you take airplanes in higher elevation, you lose power in the thinned air, you lose wing lift because of the thinner air, and you lose acceleration capability, you lose a lot of things in the higher elevation. So essentially, bad weather, poor navigation, young pilots flying in conditions they're not prepared to fly in. Et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So I think there's a lot, I mean, there's some elements that can be controlled, but ultimately it's just a difficult place to fly. Right. And you know what they say about pilots, right, Casey? What's that? There's old pilots and there's bold pilots, but there's no old, bold pilots. <laughs> that is clever. I like it. I was just going to chat briefly about Lauren and what she ended up doing after the fact. After the crash, she chronicled her experiences in a book. Really, um, she co-authored a book titled "And I Alone Survived." This book kind of offered her first-person account of her story, but her story didn't end there. Her survival story continued to resonate with audiences, and it was adapted, adapted into a TV movie of the same title. And then the Discovery Channel aired a documentary about the crash. The official investigation of the crash, led by National Transportation Safety Board, delivered its verdict. It concluded that the accident was primarily caused by the pilot in command, 
who continued flight into known areas of severe turbulence. Mm. They also found that the pilot made improper in-flight decisions and planning, which of course just highlights the dangers of navigating through unpredictable weather conditions of the Sierra Nevada area. Yeah. No surprise there, I guess. Right. So Lauren now lives in California and she has passion for environmental art and landscape design. She also has shared her knowledge and expertise with students at the California College of the Arts. And she's done a lot of things. She has some publications. She also has done set design. And um, she seems like a really diverse and creative individual. Influence on so her I think perspective. Maybe she adopted, a, as survivors often do, the seize the day mentality. One life, better live it to the fullest. Oh, yeah. yeah. Thank you for tuning into the Crux True Survival Stories. We are a small podcast and we are just fueled by our passion for sharing extraordinary tales of survival. We rely on your support to grow our community. Your help in spreading the word about our podcast is invaluable. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback just helps us reach a wider audience. You can connect with us on Instagram at the crux podcast. Feel free to reshare our posts on your story and tag us. It's a really great way to introduce us to friends and other survival enthusiasts. So if you have any suggestions, questions, or your own survival story, you would like to share. Don't hesitate to reach out to us through Instagram or at our email at the crux survival at gmail.com. We're always really excited and happy to hear from listeners and to find out what matters to you. So thanks again for joining us on this incredible journey. Stay safe and keep adventuring. Hope you have a wonderful week.